As we think about such a crucial topic, discipleship in a secular age, it's my privilege to be able to partner with this great team, Pastor Benny, Dan Yan, Arthur. And uh, this weekend, we were meant to be joined by uh, the late Ravi Zacharias, um, but unfortunately, he passed away just in May after a brief battle with cancer. And so we do miss him very much globally and as a team. But the important work that he established, evangelism undergirded by apologetics, that continues. And so let us pray for wisdom now as we think about this topic and address God's word. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and kindness to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We do pray that you might give us great wisdom as we try and navigate this culture with love, with boldness and with gentleness and respect. We pray this for your glory and our good. Amen. Well, the great books of the Western world was published in 1950, and it gave the longest space in there to the theme of God. Uh, And when the editor, Mortimer Adler, was asked why that theme in particular occupied so much space and other important themes so little in comparison, he said this, more consequences in life follow from the affirmation or denial of God than from any other basic question. He said, it's the most important question. And the interviewer was was silent and nodded, understanding whether you affirm or deny, he's right. Now, if this topic matters so much, if the God question matters so much, why is it becoming increasingly difficult for us to speak about God in public life? And so I want us to think about the evangelistic side of making disciples in a secular age, uh, not so much being a disciple in a secular age, as crucial as that is, and how we can be wise in the way we act towards outsiders. So there uh, we are in our current cultural moment in Australia, and McCrindle Research did some work in 2017, you can see it up on the screen, surveying people's beliefs And they found that while there was lots of people still happy to call themselves Christian, at least nominally, in Australia, those who regularly attend church services between 7 to 15%. Uh, There's a graph on on the bottom right. It's a small graph, so I apologise for that. But it shows a sharp rise since 1963. Not 61, not 64, 1963, as those identifying with no religion. Here's the staggering thing. That figure has doubled from 2001 to 2016. The number of people has doubled from 15% to 30% identifying with no religion. That means if that trajectory trajectory continues on, by 2031, potentially 60%. Uh, There's lots of cultural forces at work, so I'm not saying that prophetically, you know, I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet and I work for a not-for-profit, but these statistics are concerning to say the least. Ours is, as the philosopher Charles Taylor would say, a secular age and it's becoming more and more clear that this is very dominant as a thought and as an attitude in Australia. And so we need to understand secularism if we're going to effectively communicate the gospel in our age. So first off, what is secularism? Well, there's a few main tenets to secularism, but I wanna point out two big points. Firstly, secularism rejects the supernatural. 
So it's atheistic in nature, not just agnostic towards the God question. Essentially, it holds that this world, this material realm, is all that there is. That's all there is. And so in a replacement of the spiritual or the religious, it's replaced with scientism or hedonism, uh, relativism or humanism. The second big point about secularism that is essential to know to understand the attitude is that secularism makes religion or spirituality private and personal. Private meaning it's something that you have yourself just personally, and the personal element meaning it's not something you talk about in public. So it's both subjective and it's secretive. Now, we see this reflected in the research data, you can see it up there on the screen. Only 9% of Aussies speak about spirituality often. 46% said occasionally. 45% said never. Never. And so you ask, how could we engage those people who occasionally talk about spirituality or never talk about it? Because that's 91% of people. Are they wanting to talk about it, but no one is bold enough to start up the conversation with them? Well, it wouldn't appear so if you look at the research. The next slide shows that there are people, of the people who marked no religion, they were asked about exploring religion. 10% said they were very interested. 13% said they would consider. And the vast majority, over three quarters at 77%, if you got that in your math test, you would be happy. They said they were unlikely or would not consider it. Friends, that is staggering. And so you often end up feeling a bit like this polar bear. You're keen to chat about Jesus, but you're finding that people aren't so receptive. They're avoiding you. Because 77 percent of people, they don't want to talk with you about it if they're not already that way inclined. And so my question is, how on earth are you going to fulfill the great commission of Christ to make disciples of all nations in Australia when the average Aussie is very unlikely to even want to talk about religious or spiritual things? And so I believe there are three essential things when it comes to communicating the gospel and these are essential at all times. Uh, it's especially essential now as we're in a culture that's not that familiar with talk about God being removed from public life. It's kind of been a, a feature of Western history for a while, but now it's moving to the margins. And so here are three things, and this is timeless. It involves the message, it involves the messenger, and the motor who drives discipleship. And so this is a New Testament blueprint that we're looking at now for engaging with outsiders. And because it's scriptural, it's biblical, they're timeless truths that need timely application. So first off, the message, uh, the word of God, which is the gospel, which you get a number of summaries of in the New Testament, Romans 10.9 gives a, a straightforward look into it where it says Jesus is Lord. So Christianity 101, everyone knows this, we know it, it's about Jesus. The gospel is about who he is and what he has done. It's not about an ethical system or a philosophy, it's about a person. It's about Christ. 
And so the shortest creed that we have in the New Testament, it's there in Romans 10.9, is only two words in Greek, but three in English, kurios Jesus, which translates to English as Jesus is Lord. And it tells us some essentials about the gospel, which frames discipleship at all times, and now in a secular age. The name Jesus, the first part of that statement, is essential in understanding his identity. His name comes from the Hebrew Yeshua, which means God saves. And so you might ask, well, saves from what? There seems to be discussion now on what elements of the gospel must we highlight, but this one is essential. He is to be called Jesus, the angel says at his birth, because he will save his people from their sins. It's about sin and salvation. But this Jesus is not just saviour, he's Lord. Upon his resurrection, he was shown to be God's appointed Messiah and king, the king of God's kingdom. But this king doesn't rule with an iron fist, he rules by serving. And he serves us by offering his life as a ransom for many. That is how we are saved. So separating Jesus as saviour and Lord, not only is it unbiblical, it's unhelpful and you do damage to the gospel. And so if this is true, that you can have peace with God through Jesus Christ, then that is news worth sharing. And so my question is, why is it so hard to share this news? And what do we need to know about persuasion so that we can talk to people about its truth and its goodness? The Apostle Peter wrote to a group of Christians struggling with this very thing, and he grounds their witness in the Lordship of Christ. He says in 1 Peter 3.15, in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. See, the most important truth that we need to know right now, the most important facts about our culture, the single most important truth about ministry right here, right now, it's not the sexual revolution, it's not French post-structuralism, the most important truth about our context and culture is that Jesus is Lord. And so Peter says that we must apply this to ourselves continually as you, as you live under this reality. And then he says, as you do this, be prepared to give an answer, an apologia, a defense, a, a, a reason when people ask you for the hope that you have. And so when people ask questions, we need to be equipped with a response. Uh, Ravi Zacharias tells the story in the introduction of his book, Jesus Among Secular Gods, of an Indian man sitting next to Albert Einstein on a plane. And uh, to pass the time, Einstein suggested that they play a little game. Uh, Einstein said, I'll ask you a question. If you don't know the answer, I'll give you, uh, so if you don't know the answer, you give me $50. You ask me a question, if I don't know the answer, I'll give you $500. And the Indian gentleman thinks, geez, uh, who's a match for Einstein? But he's pretty confident in his kind of cultural and streetwise savviness, and he thinks to himself, well, those odds are actually pretty good. And so he agrees to play the game. And so Einstein goes first, and he asks the Indian gentleman, what is the exact distance from the Earth to the moon? And the you know, gentleman didn't know the exact distance, and so he reached into his pocket, gave Einstein $50, now came the Indian gentleman's turn. And so he asks Einstein, what goes up the mountain with three legs and comes down with four legs? 
Einstein paused, pondered, and finally dipped his hand into his pocket and gave the man $500. And he said, look, before I ask you my next question, what does go up the mountain with three legs and come down with four legs? The Indian man paused, reached into his pocket and gave Einstein $50. <laughs> See, unlike this Indian man in the story, many Christians do have responses. They have some answers that they want to be able to give people, yet in a secular age, people aren't asking us the questions conversationally or they're not willing to hear them. So you'd love to speak more, and I'm sure at times Christians feel pressure to speak more, and they think, oh, I need to do more. And so what are some of the ways that people make up their mind on worldview and moral issues, and how can we speak to them in a way which is actually going to be heard, which is going to be helpful? Jonathan Haidt is a social psychologist and professor of ethical leadership at New York University, and he wrote a important work in 2012. He's a self-professed atheist, although he's a little bit wobbly on his atheism now, called The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided Over Politics and Religion. And it looks at what things affect our moral foundations and our belief systems. And he says regarding persuasion, he shows that via psychological studies that rationality is driven by intuition. So people have intuitions that they just back up with their rationality. People don't make their big decisions on things like morality, religion, or even politics based only on rational data. See, most of us think we're, we're rationally, facts-oriented people. But he demonstrates very convincingly that intuition and emotion play the biggest role in how we make up our belief systems. And he uses this analogy of the rider and the elephant. So the rider on top being reason and rationality, and the elephant being intuition and emotion, your kind of gut-level reactions. And he says this, if you want to change someone's mind about a moral or political issue, talk to the elephant first. If you ask someone to believe something that violates their intuitions, they will devote their efforts to finding an escape hatch, a reason to doubt your argument or conclusion, and they will almost always succeed. If you ask, something, if you ask someone to believe something that violates their intuitions, they will devote their efforts to finding an escape hatch. He talks about something called motivated reasoning. He says this, if we want to believe something, we ask, can I believe it? And if we don't want to believe something, we ask, must I believe it? And he observes that the answer is almost always yes to the first question, can I believe it? And almost always no to the second question, must I believe it? See, one interesting thing about motivated reasoning is that the data actually suggests that high IQ is not actually a predictor of you having a rationally held position. High IQ does not actually mean you will be born, you will be drawn to what is true. High IQ means that you are simply better at justifying what you already believed. And you're also better at convincing others that they 
are wrong and you are right. See, height gives scientific evidence to demonstrate an ancient truth that persuasion is far, far more than evidence and rationality. And so my question is, what affects someone's motivation to hear someone else who thinks differently from them? How do people hear? Now, the ancients were fascinated with this. And you could go to school in the ancient world and study persuasion. They called it rhetoric. Uh, we've lost track of some of that discipline, but classical education saw rhetoric as phenomenally important. And so Socrates, he started a school of rhetoric. It was hugely famous in the ancient world, and Socrates' emphasis is that you've got to speak to the elephant. Now, he obviously didn't use that term, but he did say that the eloquence, the eloquence, the poetry, the humour, the emotion, they are how you persuade people. And so Socrates influenced a lot of people to think that persuasion, it's an emotional, psychological reality. Then along came Aristotle, and he said, look, it's not just an emotional exercise. Genuine persuasion is multifaceted. In Aristotle's work on rhetoric, he argued that there are three controlling factors in persuasion. Logos, which was the intellectual or rational dimension, he said that, look, we are actually rational beings, and our beliefs, we like them to be grounded in reality, but he says that logos alone does not move people to adopt new beliefs or behaviours. And so he admits that there is an emotional element that he calls pathos, since we're more likely to be moved by things that we like, but he was not a fan of the, the Socratic tradition of an overemphasis on emotion. And so Aristotle said, it is a fool who thinks that you can only persuade via logos. And it's immoral to think you can only persuade by pathos, emotion. There is a third and a most important factor in persuasion, which he called ethos. There is an ethical or a social dimension to persuasion. He says this, we are more persuaded by people who seem to us trustworthy. In the whole persuasion game, it comes down to this, the personal integrity and credibility of the communicator. You might say, the character. See, the persuasion and the character of the communicator is central. He says in his book on rhetoric, there is persuasion through character, ethos. For we believe fair-minded, they translated, people. It's the word epiakeia. And he says, we believe them to a greater extent and more quickly than we do others on all subjects in general, and we believe them completely so in cases where there is no exact knowledge on the subject but room for doubt. It is not the case, as some of the technical writers suppose, i.e. Socrates, that the art of persuasion, that in the art of persuasion, good-heartedness on the part of the speaker doesn't matter. Rather, character is almost the controlling factor in persuasion. Aristotle is saying this. Ultimately, persuasion, it's not just about emotion, although you can do a lot with emotion, he sees that, but it's also not just about rational evidence. 
He says, we are moral creatures in a web of social relationships, and the people who seem to us most trustworthy are the people we end up trusting. Now, this is an important insight by Aristotle. It's available to all people through God's common grace in creation. It's something both Christians and non-Christians can observe about human interactions. But it's also something supported by the Scriptures, by special revelation through the Scriptures. The New Testament 100% agrees that character is a huge part of persuasion. Now, we wouldn't expect Aristotle to know about something like the power of the Spirit, we'll, we'll talk about that later, but he's done really well on a human level, because the word that Aristotle uses, I made a big point of it before, when he says, good-hearted people, epiakeia, it's a difficult word to translate. It, it can mean people who are moderate, or patient, or gentle. It basically comes from the root word to yield to someone, which means that you don't treat people according to the strictures of justice and rights, but you're willing to to yield to them for their good. Now, the reason why I'm making a big deal about that word is because Paul uses the exact same word, epiakeia, in the context of how Christians are to appear to the pagan world. He uses the same word that Aristotle says is the key to persuasion. He says there in Philippians 4.5, let your... Epiakeia, you Philippians, be evident to all people. And he means the non-Christian wider community. He says, you as a church, us as a church, should appear to the world as epiakeia. Now, the various translations try and capture that word because we don't really have an English equivalent. Uh, The NRV says gentleness. The ESV says reasonableness. The KJV says moderation. You could say balance. It means an attitude that is willing to yield to the other, to treat the other person with fairness and kindness. And so there is a really interesting agreement here between the insight of Aristotle that character is the controlling emotion in persuasion and what the New Testament says about persuasion. That's why 1 Peter 3.15 emphasizes that whenever you speak about the reason for the hope that you have, the logos, the reason, It must be done with gentleness and respect. The way you speak about what you believe must match the character of the Lord we're proclaiming. What this means is this, tone is biblical. Tone matters. It's not arbitrary to faithful witness. How can you speak about the God of all grace if your speech isn't gracious? You're cutting off the branch you're sitting on. People are able to hear what you're saying when it's done in a gentle and respectful way. And this is something that Ravi Zacharias embodied so well. He said that our goal isn't to win the argument, it's to win the person. The person you are speaking with as an image bearer of God is worthy of respect no matter how strongly you disagree with their viewpoints. See, our culture is becoming a culture where you only respect people who you agree with or like. Respect is something earned. You've heard that said before, I'm sure. But biblically, respect is not something that's earned, it's something that's given. Not because of what they do or what they think, 
but because of who they are as an image bearer of God, all people. And so despite the New Testament emphasis on speaking the gospel as the necessary means of bringing people to faith in Christ, the New Testament also routinely insists that our speech must be characterised by grace in the context of good works. See, gospel speaking, gospel proclamation is absolutely necessary for someone to become a Christian. You can't become a Christian unless you know some content, and that content is the gospel, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. There is no becoming a Christian without that, but the thing I find so striking is that the New Testament puts so much emphasis on the fact that our speaking of the gospel must be characterised by grace in the context of good deeds. People must, as it were, see the integrity of the gospeler if they're to believe or hear the gospel. And they've got to see the good deeds that the gospel produces in order to think that there's something real in the gospel. But that the New Testament shows it isn't just the character of one person who matters, it's the whole community of believers, which needs to the next point, that the people of God are to embody this message. Uh, This isn't just one text from Peter that I'm hanging this on, since Paul actually says the same thing in Colossians 4, 5, and 6. He says, give an answer with tone that reflects the gospel. See it there. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer everyone. So did you see that last point? You know how to answer everyone. How? With grace. You may not know what to answer everyone, because there are some really hard questions, but you know how with grace. See, Paul doesn't say sometimes with grace or at this certain time with grace. No, he says, always with grace. You cannot fight back against bad ideas with anger or sarcasm or ridicule. Sometimes the Bible uses strong language to address the church, but it's always speaking about Christian heretics or prophets speaking to Israel. You do not find that kind of harsh, strong rebuke in the way that Christians are to speak to the non-Christian world. The New Testament is clear. It's always with grace. See, character is central to persuasion, and our character must match our message. God doesn't just send out a message. He could write it in the sky if he needed to. He sends out messengers. The golden rule of persuasion is this. The most believable person is the one that you know has your best interests at heart. Does the world know that you have their best interests at heart? To the extent that they believe that you do, they give you a hearing. Now, the question is, well, what helps people develop plausibility structures where they can hear? And so Sam Chan, uh, an Australian speaker, asked that question in his great book, Evangelism in a Skeptical World, and he asked the question, why are some things in our culture reasonable to accept and other things not? 
Because in a secular culture, belief in the supernatural is not plausible, and so it's already something that people have ruled out before you've even started speaking. So why is that? He says it's because of things called plausibility structures. He says plausibility structures are accepted beliefs, practices, and convictions that either green light what someone's saying as plausible or red light them as implausible. So he's not talking about whether what you're saying is true, ontologically, for the philosophers here. He's talking about its believability, which is called epistemology, how you know something, how you believe something. And he points out that there are three ways that we develop our plausibility structures. There's community, there's experience, and then there's facts, evidence, and data. And what the research shows is that if we belong to a community of trusted friends who believe something earnestly and live it out, we are most open to accepting and exploring what they believe is credible. See, if we're in a secular culture where people aren't free to talk about spiritual things easily, where it's kept private, then the less you talk about it, the less plausible it becomes, and it keeps on going. And so, for something to become plausible for people, it requires a community of people to meaningfully engage with it and live it out. See, the gospel is a message it's, it's based on historical facts backed up by evidence and data, which is one of Sam Chan's points. But there's also people's experience in coming to know God's grace. But then there's also the community that is to embody and live out that message. See, the church, with all its brokenness and its failures, is called a holy priesthood. Uh, it's this priesthood whose love for one another is meant to witness to all people that you are disciples of Jesus. Jesus even says that, by this people will know that you're my disciples, that you have love for one another. That phrase, one another, it saturates the New Testament. I'm trying to ground this in scriptures because it's not just Aristotle and Jonathan Haidt that's found this, it's all throughout the scriptures. The phrase, one another, occurs 100 times in the New Testament, and 59 of those occurrences are about specific commands on how to relate to one another. So love one another, bear with one another, serve one another, encourage one another, confess your sins to one another, care for one another. See, your commitment to growth in godliness, it's not arbitrary. Your commitment to living out the truth of the gospel helps evangelism. It's for all ages, whether it's pagan Rome or secular Australia or any post-Christian culture or pre-Christian culture, Ravi says, if truth is not undergirded by love, it makes the professor of that truth obnoxious and that truth repulsive. See, in a secular culture, we can speak with trusted friends about spiritual things, but we can't speak with acquaintances. And so this requires time to develop relationships. Your time with people matters. Just speaking at a stranger in a secular culture is not going to work. Their plausibility structure has already ruled out the supernatural. And so content matters, tone matters, community matters, and finally, this is the last point, good deeds matter. Good deeds matter. People can't see the gospel. It needs to be shared, but they can see the 
fruit of the gospel. You see it there in Matthew 5.16. We're to live for the glory of God and the good of others by doing good before others. Now, I've seen this played out clearly in my own life. Recently, I want to contrast with you two stories in my own life where I saw this happen, which illustrate Matthew 5.16. The first is about my failure to do this command in Matthew 5 well. Uh, There's a young boy from my neighbourhood whose uh, dad is not around the home anymore. He lives alone with his mum. And so he used to come over my house quite a bit and he'd want to go out skating and so we had some fun skateboarding. We hooked my dog up to a skateboard lead and got him to tow us along. And one day he would drop around my house to hang out and I was busy doing something at home and he dropped around to to spend some time together. And I remember thinking to myself, I don't have time for this right now. And the Spirit of God really convicted me. He's like, here's a young boy whose dad's not around. He's desperate to spend some time with an older male. And what do you think you're doing that's more important than him? And so God really convicted me, man, this person matters. God doesn't need our good deeds, Martin Luther said, but our neighbor does. (laughs) Another example of this principle is from my own experience of seeing how this scripture works out. Uh, I was flying home from England and I was seated on a plane next to an elderly lady uh, who was a Sikh lady, and uh, I'll leave her unnamed, but we got chatting, and she was traveling alone. She was obviously quite nervous about traveling alone, going to see her family. She had to take a connecting flight, long flight. Uh, And so we got talking, and uh, she told me she had a long layover in Abu Dhabi, and that's where I was laying over as well. Um, and she was nervous about what she would do in the airport for the whole night. You know, it was midnight till 6 a.m. or something. And I thought for a moment, and I said, hey, look, I'm actually a, a frequent flyer. I have lounge access. I can bring in a guest for free. Why don't you come into the lounge with me, and you can have some free food, and you can just hang out there for as long as you need until your flight. And, and she couldn't believe it. She said, sure. So she came in with me, said we had some free food, we had some drinks, and we had some great conversation talking about life and family and, and faith. It just came up. She asked me about Christianity, so I spoke to her about Jesus, uh, and she told me about her Sikh faith and how it was so important in her life. It was a great amicable conversation. She actually gave me a little Sikh ornament to keep as a token of appreciation. I gave her a Gospel of John. Uh, And I actually gave her my email address. I said, if you have any questions, I want you to touch base or even just let me know how you're doing. And then we departed, likely to never see each other again. I received this email a few days after I landed home in Perth from her son. He says, dear Jordan, my name is Narinda. Very kindly, you accompanied my mum on your flight from London. I can't thank you enough for your, kind, your kindness and care in looking after her on the flight and taking her to the lounge at the airport. She does not stop talking about you and the fine young gentleman you are, a wonderful asset to the church and your family. Once again, from her and our family, thank you for your beautiful heart. My mum sends her blessings to you and your beautiful wife. Warm regards, Narinda. This shows is you let your light shine before others, they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. It isn't about us. It's not about people going, you're such an amazing person. It's about, as he said, look, 
Uh, it's an asset to your church, your family. It's a, it's a credit to who you belong to. I did so little, but it made a huge difference for this lady. See, the research shows that people's impressions of Christians is mixed. So you look at the McCrindle research from 2016, when they're asked, how do they see Christians, look at this. It's strange. The top five things they see in Christians, caring, loving, kind, honest, faithful, pretty good. Less awesome are the next five impressions. Traditional, judgmental, old-fashioned, opinionated, hypocritical. Ouch. See, working towards godliness and holiness as the people of God is not arbitrary to God drawing people to himself. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was executed by the Nazis just four days before the end of World War II, said this, your life as a Christian should make non-believers question their disbelief in God. See, this is the New Testament blueprint, speaking the truth in love, filled with grace in the context of good works. It's timeless. It's for pagan Rome or medieval Europe or secular Australia. And so what guarantees that this works, the thing that binds this all together? It's the power of God. It's the spirit of God that does the work of God. See, 1 Corinthians 3 says it, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. He doesn't say, we did nothing and God just made it happen. Nor does, it say, nor does he say, we did everything and God, and people, there was fruit as a reward. No, no. We worked, but God made it grow. See, you are instrumental. God is the agent. He works in us and he works through us. And he uses us as his mechanism. See, sometimes this is over a, a slow process of being witness to in a community. Other times the Holy Spirit may choose to just radically reveal himself to a person. He still uses the gospel. I, I heard a story of a missionary couple who are, who are close friends of the RZAM team. And they're in a country in the Middle East that I'll, I'll leave unnamed. And they were there, they were there smuggling Bibles. Now, if they were caught with a car full of Bibles in this country, they'd be in big trouble. And so they're driving around trying to get these Bibles to people who need them, but they need some fuel. And so they see this petrol station. It's one of the only ones around. They go to pull into this petrol station, but they see a soldier out the front there standing at attention. And they think to themselves, if we get caught with these Bibles, we're in big trouble. But they think, we're not going to get to our next destination without fuel. So they stop in to get some petrol. And they try to avoid this man. They don't want to make eye contact with this soldier. They get their fuel. They get back in the car and go. As they're driving down the road, this man's wife says to him, God's told me we need to go back and give that soldier a Bible. <laughs> and the man says, God hasn't told me that. <laughs> and so he keeps driving. He says his wife kept nagging him and persisting at him that eventually he gave up and he said, fine, we'll go back and we'll give it to him, but if we die, it's on you. <laughs> and so they go back, and they tentatively get out of their car to bring this man a Bible. And they say, we believe God told us that we should, we should give you this book. It's a story about Jesus. And the soldier reached out and grabbed it and collapsed to his knees and started crying. 
And they said, what's going on? And he said, I had a dream a few nights ago, and Isa, Jesus, came to me in that dream and told me that if I waited here, he would bring someone, he would get someone to bring me a Bible that told me about him. I've been waiting here at attention for two days. The Spirit of God is not bound by us in his work, but he does use us. He used the gospel, this message about Christ. He used these people and this radical obedience. But he chose to work powerfully in this man's life. The New Testament demonstrates, especially in John's gospel, that belief is not just about the evidence, but it's also about the will. And Jonathan Haidt observed this, where he said, look, intuitions come first, strategic reasoning comes second. And Thomas Cramner saw this, where he said, what the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. See, what he's addressing is this important truth. We need to address the heart if we're going to see change and the illuminating work of the Spirit. And so what changes the heart? Because that is so hard. And we're told in Acts 16, the Lord opens Lydia's heart to respond to the message. See, it isn't all based on us, but we do have a part to play. And God uses people to open hearts by his spirit. If you don't really believe this last point, that God by his spirit is the one that opened hearts, you will never last in any kind of ministry because it's all reliant on you. It's all reliant on your speech and your persuasion and your friendliness and your generosity. Those things are important, but the spirit is at work. And these ideas, everything we've said is all brought together in 1 Thessalonians 1.5. Our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction in the heart. You know how we lived among you. See all these three things. The word, the community, the spirit. I was in New York a few years ago and I stumbled across a plaque in honor of General William Booth. Some of you may have heard of him. He was the founder of Salvation Army. And one Christmas, a long time ago, William Booth wanted to send out a message to Salvation Army stations all around the world, but he could only send a one-word telegram because it was so expensive and didn't want to use ministry funds to do something like that. And so he thought, what, what can I send out to encourage and strengthen our workers around the world? One word. He could only send out one word to encourage them, to encapsulate the Christian outlook on life. Do you know what word he used? Others. Others. Does that shape the way you make decisions? You care about others. Because our default way of behaving due to sin is self-interest. But if we shape our lives on Jesus' teaching, we'll be distinct in this way. And so the Spirit uses the Word and the church's deeds to change hearts and lives. And so what we've got is a timeless doctrine, a timeless strategy to do some essentials in making disciples, even in this secular age. And so the Spirit of God does the work of God through the people of God proclaiming and living out 
the word of God. The spirit of God does the work of God through the people of God collectively proclaiming and living out the word of God. 